I V M. Oh, there you are! Isn't it beautiful? On this glorious summer day in the late fifth century, we are standing in the shade of a great banyan tree, whose leaves rustle in the light breeze. The tree is decked with cloth ribbons, and a tiny shrine to a yaksha has been set up nearby. A few people are praying to the yaksha and leaving offerings of flowers and food. But that's not why we've come here. I want to show you something else. Here, walk with me to the edge of the clearing. Do you see it? There's the river Shipra, and its waters. People will bathe for the next twenty-six hundred years, worshiping the god Shiva in huge throngs that will grow to millions. But today, in the fifth century, there is no single crowd on planet Earth that has ever been that large. We are in a less complex, less populous, less technologically disrupted time. But it's not really a simpler time, because well, people are people. Can you hear that? The quiet mumble. Of tens of thousands of voices, the subtle breathing of a city. There, on the bank of the river, is the ancient city of Ujjayani, which is what its inhabitants call it. Even now, it's one of the oldest cities in the subcontinent, nearly one thousand years old. There's nothing that this great city has not seen: the rarest of luxuries, the most brutal of conquerors, the most delightful crafts, the most inventive writings. Riots and burnings and festivals and vast construction projects. Ashoka Maria strolled its avenues. Kumara Gupta slept in its palace. Its people are justly proud of the ancient heritage they have inherited—a heritage equal to any in the subcontinent. Look at it. Its walls gleam in the sun, over forty feet high, positioned on top of a huge earth rampart planted with spikes and thorns. Rectangular towers are positioned every 50 meters, so any attacker would be caught in a deadly crossfire of arrows from adjacent towers. The entire wall is surrounded by a huge moat, nearly 150 feet wide, in which the waters of the Shipra splash. Flags flutter on its rounded battlements, and now and then we catch a gleam from the bamboo spears of guards patrolling the walls. There's a line of people walking into the southernmost gate, which is just one among eight immense portals that control access to the city. Let's join them. Briefly, we enter darkness, and then we emerge into a courtyard. Here, customs officials are arguing with grain merchants who want a discount on their tariff. On the other side of the courtyard, we see a wealthy-looking merchant quietly slip a pouch of coins to another official. Despite the rather commercial ambiance, this courtyard is here for a reason. You see, the planners of the city know that no attacker would be foolhardy enough to attack its fortifications. The gates are the weakest points in the wall, so they've projected the gate and its walls outwards to create a rectangular edifice, which also serves as a toll booth. Any attacker who gets into this courtyard will be showered with arrows and projectiles. Let's look up. Sure enough, we see an archer frowning down at us. Let's keep moving though out of this courtyard into the city itself. A great curved road leads away to the center of the city where you and I are going. Along this entire road are shops and shops and shops. What else did you expect? Temples? As if we like our shopping. 
Let's stroll down taking in the sights. Look at what they're selling. Perfumes and spices and jewels lie in baskets. Gorgeous silks laid out. Cotton textiles imprinted with flowers and stripes and dots and dashes. The scent is heady, overwhelming and just look at the crowds. Drop dead gorgeous people wearing elegant silk garments, both upper and lower garments tied, but their midriffs, chests and arms bare and painted with scented earth in bright colors. Their hair is done up in stunning coiffures. Here and there we see palanquins and a jeweled hand emerges to point at something. An obsequious merchant runs forward and negotiates furiously with attendants. We see a gaggle of young fellows sniffing a selection of rare perfumes and muttering about whether they're good enough to wear for the evening's party. Here is someone timidly trying to talk down the price of a set of paints that he promised to buy for his younger sister. And there is a young woman trying on an earring as a crowd of admirers gathers. We have an appointment though. Onwards, onwards. The shops are pavilions with partitions of wood and cloth, parts of larger buildings. Here, in a gap between the buildings, we see a flash of green, the residence of the merchant who owns the shop. The merchant himself is standing on the floor above the shop, admonishing us to inspect his wares while his eager attendants hold up trinkets for us to check out. No, my dear sir, we have someone very important to meet. We round the curve of the road and there we see it, the royal palace of Ujjaini. Remodeled and expanded by the Gupta emperors, the beating military, economic and cultural heart of the city where hundreds of people live. Oh yeah, that's whom we're here to meet. Don't ask me how I got the appointment. Look at the place. It's surrounded by an elegant wooden wall and a small, mostly decorative moat in which lotuses bloom. Its architecture is wood, but extraordinary. We can see three floors poking over the walls, great vaulted halls and corridors, elegant pinnacles, spires, pillars decked with gold leaf and jewels, partitions of cloth and wood. This is where the Gupta emperors stay. This is where they watch ravishing performances of Sanskrit drama, where they watch dances and hear recitations, where they debate policy with their advisors. This is where the immense amount of ceremonial and administrative activity that keep the province going take place, where taxes are decided and collected and counted, where military campaigns are planned, where plots are hatched, where assassinations are ordered, where princes plot against their fathers and queens maneuver. We catch a whiff of perfume, but also the scent of elephant and horse dung, the king's personal forces. Time to go inside and inspect its wonders firsthand. At the gate is a rather stern looking fellow wearing a simple necklace of gold with his hair carefully combed back over his balding head. He grasps a metal rod which he'll whack on the wooden floor of the palace to announce our entry. Next to him are two guards clad in splendid male armor and holding metal shields with tall spears. Today is not the day when the king receives the complaints of the public. Who are you two? And what business do you have in the palace? I am Anirudh Kanisetti and this is... Anirudh Kanisetti? What sort of barbarian name is that? Why can't you foreigners have a sensible name like Suryanaga or Haridatta or Shivaswamin? Whatever names will you people come up with next? You certainly don't have an appointment here today. Off with you. Hang on, but... I said, 
Off with you, young man. Well, that sucks, but you heard the fellow. Uh, it's all right, my friend. Ujjaini, this mother of all cities, will find us something to do. Let's go somewhere less fancy. In any case, I'm totally tired of these royal assholes at this point, aren't you? So let's walk down this avenue here. Here's a large arena where archery competitions and other games and shows take place. Today, it seems that some grand aristocrat has decided to put on a wrestling match. Rows of benches are packed with spectators and the wrestlers have just climbed into the arena. Look at them strutting around like peacocks, jumping and flexing their muscles and yelling. The crowd is lapping it up. Now they're charging at each other. Oof, that was nasty. They're holding each other tightly around the waist and trying to use their legs or upper body strength to topple each other. With a huge grunt, one of them manages to throw the other onto the dust. The crowd goes wild as the victor spreads his arms, grinning. The sponsor of the show walks onto the ground and gives a speech praising the wrestler, hands him a bag of gold and a standard of victory. Then a tambourine player and drummer appear to provide some entertainment until the next match starts. Hmm, it's already past noon. When the sun sets, we'll have to leave. Let's keep walking and see what happens. Ah, now we're in another marketplace, but this is rather less fancy than the one on the Royal Avenue. The shops are more like shacks than the elegant pavilions we saw there. And it's way more crowded. The crowds are, to quote a poet, as rowdy as birds in their nests and undulate like sheaves of wheat in the fields. Food sizzles on metal pots. Soups and stews bubble as people wait to be served in leaf bowls. We can smell the stench of drainage pits and the squawks of chicken being carried out. And can you hear the haggling? It looks like this is one tradition that us South Asians haven't lost. A blacksmith pounds away at a plough where his apprentice sharpens a sickle which shrieks as he applies it to a grinding stone. Here someone is selling flower garlands while a bunch of people try them on in pose. There's a pub where cups of strong imported wine are being passed around to cheers as onlookers watch a couple of gamblers rolling dice. And look at all the entertainers everywhere. Here's a tightrope walker, here's a fellow who's dancing, or to be accurate, half of him is dancing. One eye, one nostril, one half of his mouth, one arm and one leg are moving, whereas the rest of him is completely still. It looks hilarious and is obviously as impressive as some of the talent you see in modern TikTok videos. The crowd is roaring with laughter. Now we've reached the crossroads called the Purnabhadra, which means full of fortune. Oh, this, this is interesting. If, if we take a turn here, we will end up on the Makararathya, the crocodile's highway, decorated with bright pink banners. The Makara is the symbol of many things, and in this context is the symbol of Kama, the god of love. That's right. This is the way to the courtesan's district. Now, the courtesan district of ancient Ujjayani isn't the same as a modern red light district. At this time, the occupation of courtesanship was a thriving business and would continue to be so until the late 18th century at least. Courtesans could be extraordinarily influential in these societies and worked together in large associations with certain rights guaranteed by the monarch and his officers, who were more often than not their clients. They paid a fixed share of their salaries to the state and some of them even served as agents or spies for the monarch. The most powerful courtesans were wealthy, educated and commanded a high social status, being invited to the most exclusive events and occasions as dates for dignitaries. 
they could speak polish sanskrit and discuss poetry and philosophy they could paint play music sing and dance and of course in a society that was rather more open about sex and sexuality than we are today they were very well trained in the arts of acting and love learning various arrays of eyebrow and lip movements hand gestures kisses and sex positions in the arthashastra it seems like this profession was seen as an essential element in a smoothly functioning social order but that's only because women were practically confined to the household after marriage i mean obviously the rich dudes writing these manuals wanted the ability to sleep around if they wanted to and so awarded themselves the right to polyamory so take these guys with a pinch of salt despite the fact that men generally had the upper hand courtesans could choose and dispose of patron in a way that no upper class woman could choose or dispose of husbands whereas husbands owned their wives reproductive rights courtesans had far more agency over their partners in sanskrit literature in fact they often come across as ruthlessly money oriented which from their point of view would have made sense in a misogynist society where women were often seen as sex or ritual objects first and as human beings second I think their behavior needs to be seen within the context of a complex but unequal society where men had a massive structural advantage over women even generally older courtesans without patrons could hope for little social support and many of them could be reduced to tragic poverty and end up working in a royal workshop just to feed themselves even so some sanskrit writers are much more humane in their treatment of courtesans and these women often come across as far more genuine and humane than these aristocrats and royals These writers I assume were friends with courtesans not merely their clients now given the powerful and often dangerous circles they moved in the people that courtesans could trust often tended to be rather outside the pale of established social norms disreputable monks and nuns and gamblers con men and thieves basically ambitious and unscrupulous people from the less privileged social orders who would have sent the fat old rich patrons into fits of disapproval hung about courtesans salons and ran errands for them perhaps we'll get to oh crap looks like with all my speechifying we didn't notice the clouds gathering no problem this looks like a summer shower which will clear up soon enough let's take shelter in a nearby building there's a temple to pradyumna the son of krishna some workmen are painting a cloth banner outside and are hurriedly packing it up what a lovely little shrine this is it's made of brick covered with white plaster fitted with painted stone panels depicting people wearing the high fashion that we saw on the royal avenue except the people on the temple look a lot more fit than the people in the city So let's climb the stairs into the hall outside the altar. Ah, looks like we have company. There's a balding elderly gentleman wearing white wooden earrings and another younger fellow who seems to be rather drunk already, considering that his garland of yellow flowers is now draped over his ears instead of his shoulders. So, I was telling young Madhenti that she has the worst taste in clients. Hari Krishna is a forest buffalo, Anupama Gupta is a water bag full of hot air. Madhenti Oh her She's the one who recites books from memory and all Really no accounting for taste Speaking of taste Does anyone have any wine Oh hello I'd be happy to get you gentlemen a drink but I'm afraid I don't have the currency Don't worry about it young fellow it's raining anyway and this fellow Bashpa is already drunk My name is Shyamilaka Join us we are just catching up on some gossip 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 Oh you guys need to hear this. So you know Taundiko ki Suryanaga from Sopara. 
That fellow is so full of shit with his whole holier-than-thou attitude. Ever since he became friends with the prince. Now I just passed Kusumavatika's house, and whom should I see but Suryanaga? He was acting like he didn't see me. Covered his face with his upper garment and all. Really? Oh, the sheer hypocrisy! Go on, Bashpa. So I went around the back of the house, and he almost ran straight into me. And I said, "Well, Suryanaga, why are you being so shady about this whole business that you have to insult a friend?" Oh, I'm sure he must have shit himself. Yeah, bugger turned the color of spoiled curd, and he said his uncle had sent him to convey his best wishes to his former lover. But his uncle was imprisoned last week for taking bribes. That's what I said, and he immediately scurried away without another word. <laughs> I'll never understand why some people are so furtive about something so natural as desire. But as we all know, my friends, the flames of desire inspire rash decisions. Just today morning, Surya Naga's brother made a total fool of himself. Hey, this sounds interesting. It is. Now Vishnu Naga and his girlfriend Madhana Senika were having an argument. But sir, who who is Vishnu Naga? Vishnu Naga is Surya Naga's brother. Their family moved to Ujjaini a generation ago when King Skandagupta moved his capital here to fight the Hunas. Now Vishnu Naga recently became a judge. Not that it does him any good, because a fool is always hungover in the mornings and keeps falling asleep in court. He sits up on a dais, right? So the petitioners have to shake his feet or tug at his garments to wake him up. Now, one elderly lady whose son died in a Huna raid comes up to ask for the king's favor, and Vishnu Naga is asleep. So the poor lady tugs his garment, but he doesn't budge. So she tugs harder, still no response. She tugs a third time, and off comes his garment in the middle of court. Oh, serves him right, the bugger. So Madhana Senika hears about this and gets extremely angry. Vishnu Naga has grabbed her feet, begging for forgiveness. And then what happened? That great head, which was sprinkled with holy water mixed with petals, which was showered with the blessings of Brahmins, the hairs of which were blessed with the devoted attention of his mother, was blessed also with the lotus-like foot of Madhana Senika. She kicked him. <laughs> oh, that must have lit a fire under his ass. <laughs> yeah, he told her to stop talking to him because her words sounded like farts. Poor Madhana Senika started crying. So I told him to f off, and I told her that she shouldn't be too worried about him. Because a monkey doesn't deserve a turban, does it? Anyway, this Vishnu Naga fellow went to the morning councils of the city Brahmins and demanded justice. And all the old fellows somehow managed to contain their laughter and decided to prank him. So they said, "There is no possible ritual which can undo this terrible sin. You must go ask the association of the Vittas for justice." Justice. Next time I run into him, I'll introduce him to justice. That's what I call my left foot. <laughs> now, now, Bashpa. The Brahmins have given us this chance to prank the fellow. Let's not lose it. I've spent all day collecting the vittas of the courtesans district. We are meeting in Batti Ji Mutta's house. Now it's stopped raining. Let's be off. Would you like to join us, friend? Well, well, obviously. But sir, what is a vitta? Oh, ask that very smartass Bharata who wrote that fancy. What do you call it? Shastra note, uh, Natya Shastra. Ah, my friend. We are the most blessed and the most cursed men in the city. We are the go-betweens for the rich young men and their gorgeous lovers in the courtesans district. It wasn't so long ago that I was one of these young men, but through my excessive virtue, I gave all my wealth to charity, and now I depend on my charm and diplomacy to earn a living. What he means to say is, 
he gambled away all his money and now he hangs around his ex's house hoping she'll take him back really that's quite enough from you bashpa pardon me my friend i shall contemplate in silence while we walk we need to decide what to do with vishnu naga Shyamalaka falls silent while Bhashpa hums a silly tune to himself leering at people walking by as his garland swings calmly around his ears now it's evening time and the courtesan's district is coming to life look at some of these houses verandas and rafters and windows stacked with creepers pavilions and towers and balconies made of the finest wooden brick They're covered with stucco and painted in vibrant blue, white and yellow like a flock of peacocks. The air is clear and cool as it always is after a shower. What a pleasant evening. Shamilaka notices what we're looking at and tells us that there are even more courtyards inside these houses where the courtesans and all their staff live and there are gardens with peacocks and parrots and mynas. There are pleasure pavilions next to ponds and galleries of paintings and even underground chambers for special clients. The main road of the district has been swept clean and strewn with flowers. Messengers, male and female, scurry around everywhere, making appointments while vitas hang about making clever jokes about the beauty of this courtesan or the makeup of that courtesan. Oh, there we can see one emerging from a covered carriage. and there's one getting onto an elephant there's a house with three chariots outside oh huh? that that's going to lead to some drama now we've arrived at bhatti ji muta's house and servants are waiting with silver jars full of water for us to wash our feet people are walking up riding up getting off chariots lamps are being lit flower garlands are arranged incense is burned we see a crowd of people our ancestors but their body language is so different from ours Look how comfortable they are touching each other hands resting on each other's shoulders hands held hugs exchanged warm greetings to all people pass around ointments and sandalwood paste everyone sits around on couches men and women making jokes and laughing drinks are brought out in fine cups of silver and gold but now the moon is coming up which means our time in ujjaini is coming to an end hurry A toast to Shyamalaka, a toast to Jenny, a toast to those who have forgotten, and a toast to you, my friend. Thank you for being here, my dear friends. Gathered here, like the sun and moon, have come to earth. Lend me your ears. I pay homage to Kama, God of Love, who is the Lord of everyone's spirit, This the Master of the senses. Echoes. I want to hear what you think of Echoes. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at akanisetti. That's A K A N I C T T I, or tag me in an Instagram story. Just search for my name. If you like this podcast, you could also leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM Network. You can listen to us on the IVM Podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well at IVM Podcasts.